0: Mandel's Messiah, it's one of my favorite parts of the Christmas season. In the Messiah, this song comes right after the hallelujah chorus that celebrates Christ's resurrection. So this song represents the moment of realization of the full implication of that Easter story. Because Christ is risen from the dead, so too will the followers of Christ be raised from the dead. Because my redeemer liveth, so too shall I live and everything's gonna be okay in the end. Sounds like such a pious statement of faith, so full of confidence and certainty. I know that my redeemer lives. Merry Christmas. But all due respect to Mr. Handel, this is not actually a Christmas text. It's not an Easter text either. At the Mennonite Church, Saskatchewan equipping day this fall, a Mennonite professor, Tom Yoder Neufeld pointed out that this quote originated from the book of Job. You know Job's story, the most miserable man alive. Lost his family, lost his wealth, lost his health, lost his faith. All that he has left are his friends, and his friends have come over to so very helpfully tell him that he probably deserved all of this. So midway through the book, in chapter 19, Job launches into this epic self-righteous rant against his friends. He complains about how they're treating him. He rages against how God is not listening to his cries for help. And then in the middle of the rant comes the cry, for I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. In other words, And remember that I'm quoting a highly respected Mennonite professor here. Job is saying, I know you're out there, God, so where the hell are you? Tom Yoder Neufeld's words, (laughs) not mine. (laughs) It's all well and good. I'll see you someday after I'm dead, but I need your help now. Merry Christmas. Job isn't the only character with that cry in the Hebrew Bible. Similar calls echo throughout the generations. From Jeremiah 31, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, the the matriarch, is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but find no rest. Sometimes these kinds of prophetic laments are aimed at the people themselves, crying out for them to stop being greedy and selfish, to stop hurting each other, to return to the way of God. But often these laments are aimed at God. Hey, God, we have done our part. Now when will you do yours? How long will you hide your face from me? Will you forget me forever? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? God was supposed to be the one who listens, who protects, the one who comes and changes things, who saves people. That was who God was to the Hebrew people. I have heard the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. Those were God's words to Moses at the burning bush in the Exodus story. I have heard my people's cries and come down to rescue them. If that's who God is, if it happened then, why not now? What are you waiting for, God? The Advent story begins with this cry. How long, O God, how long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my Redeemer lives. What are you waiting for? This is 10-year-old Sophia on the right, on the left, and 8-year-old Bayan in the green dress in the front row on the right. They're from the country of Yemen in the Middle East. For the last 5 years, Yemen has been engulfed in a war that many agencies are calling the worst humanitarian crisis in the world right now. Some describe this conflict as a civil war, others say that it's aggression from the neighboring country of Saudi Arabia. Last April, Safiya and Bayan joined their classmates, 2,000 of them for a regular school day in the capital city of Sana'a. That day a bomb went off beside the school, probably from an airstrike. The explosion, the resulting stampede out of the damaged building killed 15 children wounded over a hundred children and adults. Safia and Bayan escaped. Bayan's older sister did not. Last month, the UN reported that over 5,000 children have been killed in the five years of war in Yemen. An estimated two million are suffering from acute malnutrition. The Canadian government has given $130 million in aid to humanitarian relief efforts in Yemen since the start of the war, and there's another 50 million pledged this year. Canada also sells billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia and other countries that are fighting in Yemen. How long, oh God, how long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my redeemer lives, what are you waiting for? This is Migalena and Severo Quispe, and their son, Namar. They are of the Uru Urumurato people, indigenous to the land of Bolivia, along the shores of Lake Poapo. At one time, Lake Poapo was the second largest lake in Bolivia, over 1,400 square miles of water that's about twice the size of Le, uh, Lac La Ronge. For centuries, the Uru Murato people were fishers and hunters on the lake and around it. Now the lake is gone, and the Uru Murato are almost gone with it. At 12,000 feet above sea level on an arid plateau, the lake has always been vulnerable. Modern demands for water for agriculture has diverted some of the water sources that had been sustaining the lake Persistent droughts in recent years have severely lowered the level of the lake several times over the past decades. But to this point, the lake had always recovered. Not anymore. Rising temperatures from climate change hit a tipping point in 2014, and the lake began to rapidly evaporate. That summer, the water levels had gotten too low for fish to survive in the muddy water that remained. Tens of thousands of fish died, the flora and the fauna of the region was devastated. Severo Quispe and his brothers were forced to move an hour or two away to take bottom level jobs in Bolivia's coal mines and lead mines and salt flats. Around 600 of the Uru Marato are left by the lake, scratching out a living by growing quinoa and making trinkets to sell to tourists in the capital. Most families survive on what their relatives are able to send back to them from the mines. Climate scientists are certain that this time the lake isn't going to come back. A 2018 report by the World Bank estimates that over the next 30 years, 143 million people from the global south will be forced to migrate due to climate change. How long, oh God, how long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my Redeemer lives. What are you waiting for? Closer to home is Montreal Lake, just north of Prince Albert, about a half an hour from Waska Sioux. For decades, Mennonites helped to support the Timber Bay Children's Home in Montreal Lake. The home ran from 1952 to 1994, hosting about 40 children every year. Mostly these were Métis children from the Lac-La-Range area um, who would live at at the home while their parents were tending their trap lines over the winter months. The children were legally required to attend school, so they would live at the children's home and then attend the school in Montreal Lake. Mennonite churches never formally held responsibility for the home, but MCC provided volunteers to help run it. My understanding is that many Mennonites from our area donated money, material goods, and especially food to keep the home going. As these watermarked photos make clear, our Mennonite fingerprints were all over this project. And yes, there is more to this story than the smiling photos would tell. The stories of the children who live there indicate that the abuse and neglect so common in Indian residential schools are part of this story as well. And no matter what the intentions were for those who ran the school and helped out, the results of the forced separations, the loss of language and culture, the broken families and communities, the consequences have been devastating. You may have seen in the news last month that the Montreal Lake Cree Nation is opening a treatment center for crystal meth abuse in its community. CTV News reported that Montreal, the Montreal Lake Child and Family Agency estimates that more than 50% of the band's 1,200 members are active crystal meth users. In 2015, many people from the community were evacuated to Prince Albert, Saskatoon, and Regina due to the wildfires in the north. During the six-week evacuation, many members were exposed to crystal meth. In 2019, six deaths have been attributed to crystal meth use. The Reserve is also dealing with multiple attempted suicides and health problems associated with the addiction. There are a myriad of consequences, of causes of a crisis like that. There are not very many clear paths forward. Not looking to lay blame or draw straight lines, simply pointing out that these people are neighbors with long-standing ties between our communities. They're struggling and their well-being is bound up with ours. How long, oh God, how long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my Redeemer lives. What are you waiting for? A little further away, in Quebec this fall, Faiza Hussein is worried about losing her teaching job. She's a substitute teacher without a long term contract, so her place in the school system is threatened by the passage of Bill 21. Um, that's the Quebec law prohibiting some government employees in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols while at work. The law makes provision for teachers that were under contract before March to be grandfathered in, uh, meaning that the teachers that have been there won't have to comply with the new law, but all the new hires will have to remove their head coverings or other religious symbols if they want to work. That leaves many people in limbo, like Faiza as a substitute teacher, or those that are hoping to move around in the school system, because it's unclear if the laws will apply to any new contract or only to those that haven't worked in the system before. In FaZa's case, um, the substitute teachers found out a few days before the school year started that they would be allowed to continue if they had been working um, previously. They would be allowed to continue as they had been, uh, but her future remains unclear. The validity of the law is still being argued in court, but in the meantime, some people are being denied employment or forced to abandon their religious convictions for their careers. Again, it's complicated. It's not clear what's legal, what's right. But in the meantime, it's religious minority groups, especially women who are living in those gray areas who are facing uncertainty over their careers, their privacy, safety for themselves and their families. How long, oh God, how long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my redeemer lives, what are you waiting for? In my email this week, I got a note from Christian peacemaker teams from Colombia, asking for prayers for the family of Dylan Cruz, an 18 year old from Colombia who was killed during a nonviolent protest when he was hit by a tear gas canister fired by riot police. As CPT's email puts it, since the 21st of November, Broad sectors of society are exercising their constitutional right to protest, gathering throughout Colombia to to express in peaceful and creative ways their refusal to conform to the decisions that their government is taking in matters of environmental, economic, and social policies. The government has used legal means of repression, legal in quotes, means of repression trying to silence these voices. Those who raised them like Dylan Cruz, died participating in actions that are not only legal, but are also the only mechanisms through which people express their desires for change in this country. That's in Colombia. I could have used examples of major conflicts between protesters and government forces in half a dozen countries currently. I could talk about the eight different international um, or internal armed conflicts that have killed over a thousand people each this year or the four more that have killed over 10,000 each. Could have simply pulled out my phone and read the headlines from this morning. Any news source, whatever crisis has captured our attention this weekend, there's always tragedies to read about. In the face of injustice and oppression, in a world where the innocent suffer for the decisions of the powerful, in light of the sheer destructive power that we humans are capable of, the cry continues, how long, oh God, How long must we bear pain in our souls and sorrow in our hearts? Can't you hear your children weeping? Why have you forsaken us? I know that my Redeemer lives. What are you waiting for? How's everybody doing? What are you feeling while listening to these stories? Take a second to check in with your emotions. Sadness, heaviness in your spirit... The room feels heavy, for sure. Some helplessness, I get lots of that. Hopelessness, frustration, of course. Anger, some of us have been trained to feel guilt reflexively when we hear stories like this. We feel guilty because, well, who am I to be comfortable while these other people are suffering? Some of us might not feel much at all. We've heard these kind of things before. We're numb to it. Maybe because our cups are full enough already and we can't handle any more bad news. Or maybe our numbness is a way of keeping our distance, distracting ourselves. I'm not suggesting that you should be feeling anything in particular today. I just encourage you to pay attention to whatever it is that you are feeling. This is the point in, in the sermon where I usually ask a question, something like, so what do we do about this? What's God calling us to in light of these realities? Today, I want to suggest that we're not meant to do anything. Not yet, anyway. The Advent story doesn't start with action, let alone solutions. Even the Christmas story, when the Messiah finally shows up, he doesn't actually solve anything. He's a baby. All he does is add to the crying. So there may yet come a time in this season to be the change you want to see in the world. But today is simply a time to feel the need for change, to hear the cry of the heartbroken and hopeless, to listen to the tears and fears, to sit with them for a while, to join in the cry for help. Whatever pain you're carrying, let it rip. You don't need permission. You don't need to worry about offending God or somehow being punished for complaining. Cry, scream, yell, curse, beg, whimper. You're in good company. The testimony of the ages is that God can handle your outrage. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses right there with you, shouting, Me too. These cries were not condemned. These cries were preserved. This is scripture. The Christian tradition claims that these cries are God's word. Even our outbreak and our heartbreak and outrage contain the voice of God. Somehow God is present in the expressing of our suffering. Somehow we need to speak our pain and in that we are never alone. Beyond that we don't do anything, not yet. This week my spiritual director reminded me of the meditation practice called Tonglen. Many of you heard of this? I believe its origins go back to Tibetan Buddhism, but as you can see, as you will see, this can be a very Christian prayer practice as well. Tonglen means giving and taking. The practice is quite simple. In your prayer, as you're thinking about a situation that's troubling you, with each breath in, you imagine that you're breathing in the pain and the stress of that situation like the stress is like a cloud that you're pulling into your lungs. And when you breathe out, imagine breathing out as much kindness and compassion as you can muster. Breathe in darkness and pollution, breathe out light and goodness, like some kind of air purifier for bad vibes. I know it's kind of hokey. All prayer is a little bit hokey. In Christian language, I would say that Tonglen is about bringing our weaknesses and failures before the spirit of God who lives in us and trusting God to transform the darkness into light as we breathe. That God's healing and hope flow through us to the world, as the Mennonite vision statement says. Tonglen is something that you can do as a regular meditation or prayer practice, or it can be a spur-of-the-moment thing as well. Write a writer... Pima Chowdron puts it this way. This is a practice you can do for a real-life situation. Whenever you meet a situation that awakens your compassion or that is painful and difficult for you, you can stop for a moment, breathe in any suffering that you see, and breathe out a sense of relief. For example, you might be in the supermarket and see a parent yelling at their child. Might have been there before. It's painful for you as an outsider to see this, but there's really nothing you can do or say at that moment. Your first reaction might be to turn away out of fear and try to forget it. But in this practice, instead of turning away, you could actually start to do tonglen for the little girl who is crying, and also for the angry mother who has reached the end of her rope. You can send out a general sense of relaxation and openness, or something specific like a hug or a kind word, or whatever feels right to you at the moment, It's not all that conceptual, it's almost spontaneous. When you contact a painful situation in this way and stay with it, it can open up your heart and become the source of compassion. See the pain of the world, breathe it into yourself so that it becomes part of you and then breathe back into the world as much compassion and grace as you can offer. Why does that sound so familiar? Now I know, Tonglen meditation doesn't solve anything. Breathing in pain and breathing out compassion does not bring peace. The parent and child in the supermarket are still distressed. The drugs are still being abused. The bombs are still falling. The crops are still failing and the fish are still dying. But if we remember the story, the coming of Emmanuel didn't end the suffering of the Jews. Christmas didn't bring peace on earth, goodwill to all. Neither did Easter or Pentecost, for that matter. Which is not to say that Jesus failed. But there's something else going on in this story. A different kind of salvation is near. Apparently it's not the kind that takes away our pain and solves our problems. But perhaps, still, it's good news. Perhaps there's something about opening our hearts and becoming a source of compassion that is meaningful and worthwhile beyond our understanding. Perhaps this position of vulnerability and honesty about our struggles, perhaps this is the moment where God's presence will be known. Suppose we'll have to wait and see. May God grant us the courage and compassion to listen and to wait with open hearts.